Hey, welcome to Church Alive. Our mission is to reach, teach, and empower people to impact their generation for Christ. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the message. In for a treat this weekend, this this day. Oh, I, I didn't say it already, but yeah, everyone's so excited. Been married oh. to this bride oh, yes. for fifteen years. Yes, Friday, I think yes. it was right. Yes, we had a good time. Good time. Um, but you're in for a treat today. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about Pastor Maria Dursa. Yeah, man, I had the opportunity to meet Pastor Maria at She Is Free Conference last year, and I already knew so much and heard so much about the amazing woman of God that she is, but then to tangibly hug her and meet her and talk to her. But what I've loved about her, and Anthony's been so, so thankful, actually, that I get to call her friend, just her intentionality, right? Yeah. That's what I would love to say about her, is just her intentionality is second to none. I've, I haven't really met a lot of other pastors who really stop and pause to think about people that they don't even know, they don't even really see. And so often she sends me a message, I'm praying for you. Hey, I feel like God told me this to say to you. And I'm like, she gets it right every time, you know? And and as I was... I'm feeling the unlove. Where's my text? No, I feel the love for her love. Yes. <laughs> He's like, thank God you've needed someone like that in your world. And and during worship, as I was standing there, I just kept thinking and just sensing, wow, what a gift Pastor Maria is to the body of Christ. She is a gift to the body of Christ. Her story, her testimony, it is not easy traveling all over the place. You know, you want to hang out with your grandkids and hang out with your family, be in your home church. But she goes and she spreads the word of Jesus Christ. That is a gift yeah. to the body of Christ, getting inconvenience for the kingdom. And man, she's a gift to me. And I pray that today, I know that today she will be a gift to your world as you lean in and just know that God is going to speak volumes into your world through her life, through her voice. Can we stand as we honor Pastor Maria today? Do you not love your pastors? Let me tell you, this is an amazing church. You know how I know? We have Derek and Charity. They were in our church for years. They're they're my kids. I love them. They moved to Jersey. I sent them everywhere. They kept saying, nope, not the place. Nope, not the place. They walked in this place, and I get a call, and he says, Mom, I found a home. I found a home. He connected. Pastor Miriam went out of her way. She didn't know him, but she went over she felt the holy spirit said i gotta hug them i gotta hug them they felt at home they felt a connection you're all unofficial greeters right but it is just amazing because i know that the love of god dwells in this place and i pray that you would be local influencers and bring every single person you run into tell them about the good news and hope that's found in jesus christ and there's a place where you can tangibly feel his presence. So, Father, we thank you for church alive, oh God. You are alive in this church, oh God, for sure. I pray, oh God, that you bless it exponentially, that they would see growth like they've never seen in their life. Not for the sake of growth, for the sake of the souls that you died for, Lord. I pray, oh God, you bless them in every way, every day, oh God, and bless this service. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In the name of Jesus, and everybody said amen and amen. You may be seated. Guys, I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to give you a little snapshot 
into my life because oftentimes our past affects our present and wrecks havoc on our future. So I want you to hold on to your seatbelts because I'm going to go as quick as I can. But I am going to take you on a journey, not only from the beginning of my life, but even after I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, the stuff I struggled with. And I have a feeling that some of you in this place have the same struggle, but you don't know exactly what it is. You haven't identified it yet. So here it goes. My family was all in the nightclub business. My father owned a nightclub in Greenwich Village, and my mother was a nightclub singer. As a matter of fact, my first cousin owned the Stonewall, where the whole revolution, the gay revolution started. So this is my family background. So my father marries my mother, and they want to have a baby, and they try for 12 long years. And at 29 years old, my mom finally becomes pregnant. And from the beginning, she starts to experience these headaches. Now, this is 1950. There's no MRIs. There's no CAT scans. So the doctors say, don't worry, headaches caused by the pregnancy. Don't worry. The first trimester, they will dissipate. But they don't dissipate. My father comes home from the nightclub. He finds my mother with a towel wrapped around her head, banging her head against the wall. They rush her to the hospital. They discover she has an inoperable brain tumor. The doc, she slips into a coma. The doctors open her up and they take out a two and a half pound baby girl. What are the odds in 1950 that a two and a half pound baby would survive? But God obviously had a plan, but I didn't know that for many, many, many more years. Well, basically the day my mother died, my father died. He didn't die physically, but he died mentally. He died emotionally. I was placed in the New York Foundling Hospital where they put orphans. I have no name on my birth certificate. My name is Baby. Nobody ever named me because nobody ever thought I would live. So I oftentimes say, if you say, hey, baby, I'm like, well, that's my name. <laughs> I was very, very sickly, eight months, eight months without a name, very sickly, until one day a nurse looked at me and said, wow, she's still kicking. We might as well name her Maria. So my father takes me home, eight months old, has no clue what to do with the baby. Because if this is 1950, there's no such term as single parent households. My father's best friend was a glass of scotch. He would look out the window and cry for my mother. So my father tried everything he knew to do, but nothing was working. And he figures at two and a half years old, he's going to put me in a religious boarding school. He feels my needs are going to be met. Somebody's going to have the wherewithal to give me three square meals a day. I'm going to bond with women. I'm going to learn about God. I'm going to learn my ABCs and my one, two, threes. And I remember like it was yesterday getting in my father's big gray Chrysler. It was like a battleship. And I felt like we were driving for hours and hours. And he pulls up to this gravel road this long gravel road, and he pulls in front of these huge convent doors, and, and, and he gets me out of the car, he takes my little suitcase, and he takes me out, and he bends down, and he looks in my eyes, and he says, Maria, I'll come and see you when I can. And that was very few and far between. Those convent doors open, and everything my father thought was gonna happen didn't happen. I was beaten. I would be woken up in the middle of the night, put in a dark stairway 
for no reason. I would have chunks of hair pulled out of my head. I'm left-handed. I would be put in a tub of very hot water. And I would be told over and over again, you're a child of the devil, Maria. You're a child of the devil. I would be given laxatives and be forbidden to go to the bathroom. And if I went to the bathroom, I would be beaten again. So you could imagine what I thought about God and what I thought God thought about me. When the little girls, they went home every weekend. They had mommies and daddies. And I was left there and I would be given a glass of wine, a little glass of wine. Imagine that, three, four years old, five years old. And I would wake up in bed with someone that represented God. The little girls, they would come back from being home every weekend and they would open their suitcase. And to me, their suitcase smelt like love. They would take out little cards from their mommy and they would put it on their dresser and they would look at the card and they would look at me as if to say, you don't have a card. And this is why I say, guys, once you're born again, you don't have to be who you were. You be who you needed, who you wanted someone else to be to you. That's who, that's how God changes us. So there's no excuses for us to remain the same. And they would take out their little perfumes and they would look at the perfume. They would look at me as if to say, you don't have a mommy. But I wasn't looking at the perfume and I wasn't looking at their card. I was looking at the lipstick mark on their cheek. And that lipstick mark meant that nobody was going to wake them up in the middle of the night and put them in a dark hallway and no one was going to give them a glass of wine or stick them in a tub of very hot water. And no one was going to tell them, you don't have a mother because God doesn't think you deserve one. And that was the sentence that shaped my life. Everything in hinged on you don't deserve. God doesn't think you deserve. When my father did come and see me, which was very few and far between, he would say, how's everything, Marie? And I'd say, fine, Daddy, just fine. You see, because my father was very fragile. And, and I thought, I grew up thinking, I gave my mother a brain tumor. I thought I gave her cancer. We never celebrated my birthday. My mother died on my birthday. So everything about me was weird and, and odd and, and, and ugh. And I always felt that way. Anyway, at 10 years old, my father shows up unexpectedly and he finds me with black eyes and, and marks all over me and he takes me out. And now we live in, in Manhattan in the Chelsea area. And in those days, it was a tough area. And he puts me in this co-ed school and because I'm the new girl the boys like me and because the boys like me the girls hate me and the girls in this school they were like Philistines they were like the biggest <laughs> baddest girls you ever saw in your life and every day the Philistines would chase me home and I learned how to be an Olympic runner <laughs> honey I ran so fast every day I would get back in that apartment I'd be like <sighs> And my father would say, how's everything, Marie? And I'd say, fine, Daddy, just fine, because he was too busy looking out the window, crying for my mother. Until one day, the Philistines caught me, and they surrounded me, and they ripped my blouse. And with my left hand, I held my blouse closed. And with my right hand, I had to fight. But I didn't know how to fight then. And I say then, because I learned to be just like them. And when I went up to hit them, my thumb was out and my thumb snapped back. But I couldn't go home and tell my father my thumb was broken because he was too busy looking out the window crying for my mother. And I oftentimes say, 
There's things in our life they've never been set right. You see, to this day, my thumb swells up. To this day, when I have a certain movement, there's a pain. And there's certain things in our life that have never been set right. There are certain movements. There's certain block. There's a certain smell. There's a certain song that goes on. And it brings you back to that place of pain. But I am here to tell you that although it's a process, God wants to make every broken place in your life straight. As he puts his finger on that painful thing, you have to release it to him and allow him to fix it little by little because he will make you whole. That's God's intention. Anyway, it became just like the Philistines. I started, here I am, 10 years old. I'm going to a liquor store and I'm buying Gypsy Rose, 99 cent cheap wine, Thunderbird. And I am drinking a pint and lying on the streets of what we call the meatpacking district now. And now it's very chic. But in those days, it was really where they slaughtered the animals. And the blood of the animals would run down the sidewalk into the street. And here I was, a little girl, unconscious, lying in the blood of those animals. And nobody ever told me there was a God that loved me or even cared about me. My drugs started to escalate. I started smoking weed and snorting coke and taking two and all, second alls, quaaludes, you name it. I have done everything. It's now the 60s. You start tripping, doing acid and mescaline and all of that stuff. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was sticking a needle in my arm. You could put those pictures up. And when we got, after we got saved for years, our drug dealer found those pictures and, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, I've preserved those pictures. Because if you had them when you first accepted Christ, you could go a little slower. You would, you would have, uh, you would have thrown them away in shame. But I want people to see what I can do in a life. You could turn to the next one. I have overdosed on heroin three times. I have been arrested. I've been hit by a car. I tried to commit suicide. But obviously, God had a plan for my life. So I started to work for Bergdorf Goodman. You can take that off. Um, I started to work for Bergdorf Goodman. I started to meet famous people. I did famous people's makeup. I was into this whole jet set type of living. On never waited online to get in a club. I found a club that was open on Sunday. I mean, I was the club queen. And 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 it was I was in the Daily News in 1975 centerfold for disco dancing, but more like the underground clubs like a Studio 54 or the Limelight and all of that. Studio 54 wasn't open yet, but all of that, um, that all of those kind of clubs, I was crazy. I I was I was just insane, looking for something to fill my life. Anyway, um, I, in the midst of this, I find my father dead in his apartment. I am so hard. When they drilled through the door, literally the bolt was on on the inside. They drilled through the door. My father is dead. I'm so hard. I go for his sleeping pills and his liquor. I could care less that my father is dead. I felt like he didn't care about me. I don't care about you. And now I'm going to get all his money because surely that's the thing I'm missing because knowing famous people isn't filling that emptiness. Not waiting online to get in a club isn't filling that emptiness. Having a million people do my hair and dress me up isn't 
filling that emptiness. So it has to be money, all that money. So I inherit all that money. And I, I do what the world says you need in order to be happy. I buy designer luggage. I have nowhere to go, but I have a whole set of designer luggage. I have humongous diamond earrings. I have more chains than Mr. T. I had everything that was in Cosmopolitan and Vogue. Everything. And I'm empty, empty, empty. And I meet this man, Michael Durso, and I think for sure he's the answer because he is so cute. He is. He is like the cutest guy in the whole world. He's so sweet. He's not crazy like me, yeah. He smoked weed, yeah. He snorted coke and did acid, but he wasn't shooting up. So he was like an upstanding citizen to me. <laughs> he wasn't like the scum of the earth like I was. And he makes me stop shooting up and we start to be together. And we decide after a while we're gonna move in together. This is 1975, you know why get married. So we find this beautiful L-shaped studio apartment and we go to Bloomingdale's and we order all the furniture. <laughs> we decide to go on this 10 day vacation to Mexico because the furniture wasn't gonna be, be delivered with the, uh, was gonna be delivered in two weeks. So we take 10 days because pray tell God forbid that we're without furniture. So, we go on this par to this paradise in Mexico. I have my designer luggage. I have a Norma Kamali bathing suit on the cover of Cosmopolitan. You know, I am very, very important. I have the man of my dreams. I am all that. But I am so, so empty. I'm so empty. It's like, what is wrong? So we get to this paradise, and I'm thinking, okay, this is it. The emptiness is going to go away. This is it go into the room and I suddenly feel emptier. And as the days go on, this emptiness, it's like something is screaming inside of me. There's like an echo inside of me saying, help me, help me. So it's the fifth day to this 10 day vacation and my boyfriend, Michael, decides to go out for a walk on the beach one night and I decide to stay in the room. And I'm looking around everything I have and everything the world, the lies of the world that tells you you need to have in order to be happy. And I'm getting angrier and angrier and I decide to talk to God, but I don't talk to him the way we talk to him. I start to curse him out and I started to shake my fist at him and say, what kind of God are you? What kind of God are you? What is this thing called life? I feel like a dog chasing her tail. And in this room, this holy God that should have struck me dead. I felt this unbelievable love. And he knew my name. He said the name Maria. It was not audible. It was internal. It was like mercury in a thermometer. It was like what I was looking for my whole life. It filled me all the way up. And he said, give me your life before it's too late. I knew that I knew it was God. I didn't know his name was Jesus. I Never heard of being born again. But I knew that my life was wrong. I knew my filthy mouth was wrong. I knew sleeping with my boyfriend was wrong. I, I knew the string bikini or lack thereof was wrong. <laughs> and all I wanted was to go home and find the voice. So my boyfriend walks back in the room. He says, I says, honey, when we go back home, will you go to church with me? He said, church? He said, you need a smoke a joint, girl. You need to get high. 
I said, I don't need to join. I, I need God in my life. And he's looking at me like I do, 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 do. Like I am like from outer space. So now there's five more days to this 10 day vacation. And let me tell you, the shop was closed. And Michael was not a happy camper. So Michael's planning on dumping me. I'm planning on dumping him. We're leaving this place. They offer me a job. They know we're not married. I turned to Michael. I said, that's the devil. He doesn't want me to go home and go to church. He is looking at me like, who the heck are you? Like, I was an instant spiritual genius. I'm just telling you right then and there. So we go home. We go back to the apartment with the two mattresses. And I have to tell somebody, I can't shake this thing. This thing won't go away. So I call my friend. My friends are all crazy like I am. I don't know there's such a thing as people call Christians. So I call my friend Barbara. I said, Barbara, I got to talk to you. She goes, no, I got to talk to you. I go, no, I got to talk to you. She goes, no, I got to talk to you. She goes, hurry up. I said, Barbara, I need God in my life. And Barbara says, praise the Lord. I said, praise the who? She said, Maria, while you were gone, some hippie, and I say thank God for the hippies, because the church people are too busy going to Bible study. Some hippie preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to her and 30 of our friends. She says, we formed a circle, and we prayed, Lord, save Michael and Maria in Mexico. Guess what night that was? The night that voice spoke to me, thousands of miles away. Don't ever tell me that God doesn't answer prayer. Your prayers go where you can't go. God is never not working. So she takes us to church that night. My husband has on a black leather suit with fringes. These are the, this is the rest of his suit from 1975. He has five earrings, four earrings. I have like more makeup on, like you could have went ice skating on my eyelids. I have black lipstick on. I have five earrings, four earrings, all this stuff hanging all over me. And, and all I know is through the whole service, my boyfriend, he has Coke in his pocket. And he's like, Shh, you gotta be kidding me, Maria. These people are weird. Like we weren't weird. And I love, how, I love how great the church is, how kind the church is. You walk in, you look weird. They're like grabbing their pocketbooks. They're afraid of you. You know, the church is supposed to be a Holy Ghost hospital. When do you go to the emergency room and the doctor goes, ugh. Come back when you look better, right? So they, you know, people are like afraid of us, a little, little Pentecostal church. And all I know is that pastor said, if you were to die tonight, would you know where you would spend eternity? And I knew that I knew I wasn't going to the good place. I felt like someone levitated me out of my seat. I went to the front. And when I looked to my right, my boyfriend was kneeling next to me, sobbing, weeping. The pastor came, he got the anointing oil, and I'm thinking to myself, OMG, I saw the exorcist. I figured my head was gonna spin around a few times. And, um, and he said, he, he, we, we prayed the prayer of salvation, and he said, you're gonna be known as the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And I tell you, no truer story. We go home that night, we throw out the drugs, drug paraphernalia, music, magazines, everything, whole new life. And we get married on a rainy Monday in City Hall.
And in 2015, we were married 40 years, and we got married in our church. You could put up the picture. Our three sons are pastors. I have eight grandchildren. I am so broke, broke. Eight grandchildren. And um, God gave us a whole new life. But I want to take you a little further. You see, I was instantly delivered from drugs. Isn't he so cute? <laughs> Just want you to know that picture is photoshopped. <laughs> That's how God sees us. He sees us photoshopped, honey. He sees no wrinkles, no stain, no blemishes. Thank you, Jesus. My external behaviors changed immediately, but what didn't change immediately was how I felt about myself internally. You see that sentence, you don't deserve, that sentence shaped my life. And I, 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 you know, it had nothing to do with what God was doing for me. It was going to take decades for me to believe that I was loved by God. I oftentimes say this, great things can happen to you, but unless they happen in you, they won't change you. You see, I knew in my mind or my head that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. But every time I put my head on the pillow at night, I always felt that God was displeased with me. You know, shame is not the feeling of doing something wrong. It's the feeling of being something wrong. I always felt like I was wrong. I was the wrong kind. Like, how could God possibly love me? Knowing something in your head as opposed to knowing something in your heart is like living on two different planets. Knowing someone loves you in your head as opposed to knowing someone loves you in your heart. It's like the difference between an acquaintance and an intimate friend. Now, it's a known fact that there's an 18-inch distance between our head and our heart. But for me, it might as well have been a billion, million miles apart. I always felt there was sludge between what I believed and what I received, but I couldn't understand why. In 1991, medical literature published findings that the heart has its own brain. Imagine that. The thoughts you think in your heart is who you really are. The brain and the head is connected to the brain and the heart, and it sends messages to one another. That's why we say things like, my mind is telling me one thing, but my heart is saying something else. Our brain, the brain in our head, that's our logic, but the brain in our heart is our seat of our emotions. That's why as women, we buy those shoes with the little red bottoms, and we know we can't afford them. <laughs> so... Think about the implications of the, of the brain, of your heart having its own brain. It, it has memory, just like your mind has memory. So it remembers words like, you don't deserve. You're not as good as, you're not as pretty as. God doesn't think you're blah, blah, blah. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Not as a man thinketh in his head. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not trust in the Lord with all your head. I know that the mind is a battlefield, but it's only half the battle. We got to get our, our, our brain and our mind and our heart in sync with one another because the Bible clearly differentiates between the head and the heart. I'm sure you go to a great church and you leave your, the building on Sunday, your pastors preach the most amazing messages. And you feel like you're able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. You have your super 
woman cape on. You have your Superman outfit on. That's right. You're like, yes, that's right. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's right. God is for me. And then Wednesday comes. And all of a sudden you're like, is God for me? Can I do all things through Christ? It's the exclamation point turns into a question mark. What happened? As that truth was working its way down from your head to your heart, because your heart has a mind of its own. It has DNA. It has little hands that say, that's not for you. That's for her. That's for him. And all of a sudden, you take off your little cape and you roll it back up in the drawer until next Sunday, until you're charged up again. I used to think that God was putting me in front of people because he wanted you to see how stupid I was. And I would manage. I could be speaking in a room of thousands of people. And I would see the one person who was nodding, falling asleep. And that's what I would focus on. I would always focus on the negative. Maybe you can help me, my brother. Thank you so much. Look at the Old Testament. Look at how God's people responded to his love and kindness. Here they are. They were slaves for 435 years. And God looks at them and he says, you're the apple of my eye. I want to give you a new start, a brand new start. I want to bring you into a new land. And he <clears throat> starts to do things to prove how much he loves them. And he says, Red Sea, no problem. I'll turn it into a road. Too hot, no problem. I'll be a cloud by day, too cold, no problem. I'll be a pillar of fire by night. No food, no problem. I'll rain down manna for you. No clothes, no problem. I'll make sure your shoes don't run out. But no matter what God did for them, they would say things like, why have you brought me here? That we should be victims. They had a victim mentality. They were always waiting for the other shoe to drop because their past, the shoe was always dropping. But now God, they're, now, they're, now they're in God's hand and God wants to provide for them. But they, they don't get it. And God sends those 10 spies to check out the land and everything God said was true. They come back carrying this humongous fruit. Took two men to carry it on their shoulders. But along with this fruit is this gigantic sense of fruitlessness. Their past was present with them. And sadly, it wasn't the 500 mile journey. It was the 18 inch journey. And truth be told, the walk to the promised land is not horizontal. It's vertical. If you conquer this, you will, you could conquer anything. Now, the apostle Paul prays in Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open. He says, then you'll know the hope to which you were called. Then you'll know the same power that was in Christ lives also in you. So I have this eye opening experience. I'm asked to do the Brooklyn Tabernacle's first women's conference, and that was in honor. And of course, I want to impress them. So I start to pray prayers like, God, show me who the 666 is. You know, show me who the four horsemen. I'm not asking for much. Give me something from the book of Revelation. And weeks and weeks and weeks pass, and God is not speaking to me because he doesn't answer those proud prayers. So one day, I'm... Um, I'm so desperate, I'm like, God, please, give me anything, anything. <laughs> and I'm making my bed one morning, and I 
fluff up my comforter. And as the comforter goes down, I hear a voice say to me, I want you to ask them, do you believe God really loves you? I said, what? You want me to ask the people from the Brooklyn Tabernacle if God really loves them? I mean, that's so basic. And he said, Maria, do you believe I really love you? And I had a meltdown. I realized that all my issues were wrapped up in that one foundational truth. You get it wrong there, you get it wrong everywhere. And he showed me a vision of a choir. And he said, you see the choir? They're all singing the same song. They're all swaying the same way. But some of them are singing. They're saying, Lord, I'm singing. Do you love me now? And then there's another group that are saying, because he loves me, I sing. You see, in church, we're all doing the same thing on the outward. But some of us are saying, God, you see, I was a host today. Do you love me now? Lord, I led worship. Do you love me now? And then there's others, because he loves me, I host. Because he loves me, I sing. Oh, it's from a different place. So he tells me, I want you to open up to Mary of Bethany. And the first time we see Mary of Bethany, she's sitting at Jesus' feet, right? She's empty-handed. She's not touching him. And her sister Martha comes out of the kitchen like a lunatic, and she accuses him. And Jesus defends her, right? Tell her to help me. What she's doing has been, she's chosen the better thing. Second time we see her, it's after her brother is raised from the dead. And the Bible says it's six days before the Passover. And the Bible says that she takes just about a pint of this precious ointment. And now she just pours it on Jesus' feet. So now there's a little touch involved. She has something with her that's precious involved. And Judas, who represents the devil, accuses her. But what does Jesus do? He defends her. The third time we see her, the Bible says it's two days before the Passover. And she takes the bottle and she breaks it and she pours it out. Now she's anointing his head. So she goes from not touching to just a pint to breaking the bottle. Now she's eye to eye. Now she's close to him. Now she's touching his head. Notice the apostles who represent the saints accuse her. What does Jesus do? He defends her. Notice every time she tried to take a step closer, she's accused by a familiar voice. Every time she's accused by the familiar voice, Jesus defends her. And notice, when she was empty-handed, he never said, really, Mary, really? Empty-handed? Really, Mary, really? Only a pint? He defends her as vehemently when she was empty-handed as when she broke the bottle. So don't let any lie from the pit of hell say, really? Really? Only one chapter? Really? Only a dollar? Don't let anybody accuse you because God is your defender. He is not your accuser. I want to end the, with this story. When I was a little girl, in, my father put me in camp for one season. And the camp counselor, she loved me. She, I don't know why, but she, she probably knew my background. And she tried every which way to get close to me and because of what happened to me in the boarding school, I couldn't let her near me. I was, I was afraid. And she takes my little cot and she puts it by her bed. But I'm always 
wondering, what does she really want? You see, I'm suspicious. So no matter what she did, I kept her at arm's length. So at the end of the camp season, there was something called queen for a day. And if you were queen for a day, you were going to get a cake, a crown. You were going to get an ice cream sundae. You were going to be special, special. And she wanted me to be queen for a day. So there's all the cards and there's all the kids. And she's totally cheating. She's not, all the kids are picking, right? And then, and then she kind of puts the queen of hearts card up like when it comes to me and she's looking at the card and she's looking at me she's looking at that card she's looking at me and her eyes are saying take the card maria take the card and i thought i'm going to take that card i'm going to be queen for a day i'm going to be special i'm going to get an ice cream sundae i am going to get a cape and i'm going to get a crown but in the next second i hear this voice you can't take you can't be queen for a day. You don't even have a mother. And I took a different card. I forgot about that, that story. I never remembered it again. And about 20 years ago, I was with another woman from my church. And I was preaching in a conference in North Carolina. And I don't know, on this platform, I remember the story. And I start to give the story. And all of a sudden, a woman, not camp counselor but a woman she came down the aisle it wasn't time for the altar call she comes to the front and she's just like standing there and I have no clue what to do with her I'm trying to ignore her because she's like messing up everything and she will not go away she won't go away I went over there and look she's still there you know and I and all of a sudden I I stoop down and I go what are you doing are you doing? Drag her off. What are you doing? What are you doing? And she says, this is the craziest thing. She says, when I was leaving my house, the Holy Spirit told me, go in my deck of cards and get the Queen of Hearts card. She says, God, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. She said, I got in the car and I drove out of the driveway and I rode down the road and the Holy Spirit said, I told you, go back and get the Queen of Hearts card. You see, although I forgot that story, God didn't forget. You might have forgotten many things, but God hasn't forgotten. And today, I believe the Holy Spirit is saying, your royalty, pick the card, pick the card. He says, I didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You only love me because I first loved you. The Bible tells us to live in the love of God. How are we going to get our head and our heart in sync? We're going to live in the love of God. We're going to walk around saying, he loves me. That's right, he loves me. A righteous man may fall, but guess what? He gets back up. He loves me. We need to stop snacking and chewing on the negative things of the past. We need to stop believing the devil's lies and accusations. We need to stop chewing on the food of champions because God has called you to be more than a conqueror. Greater is he that is in you than any voice that's in the world. He loves you. He's for you. He has a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. 
in a few moments, we are going to pray. We're going to pray all for ourselves that we would live in the love of God. And But I am want, I want every eye to be closed one moment. Maybe you're like me. Somebody invited you. Maybe you've been coming, checking this church out. Maybe you're giving your life to Christ, but you gave him. You thought he gave you back a life of law, not a life of grace and love. But I'm here like that pastor was here. If you were to die tonight, would you know where you would spend eternity? And if that's you with every eye closed, I want you to put your hand up and put it down. Thank you. 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 This is the best day of your life. God knew you were going to be here. He loves you. He loves you before you even knew his name. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Now we're going to pray. Father God, repeat after me, everybody. Father God, we come in the name of Jesus. We confess we're sinners, but you're my savior. And now I'm going to live by your grace and by your love. You're going to give me a brand new life. My slate is washed away, and I become new today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you want to hear more empowering messages and learn more about Church Alive, make sure to follow us on social media and check out our website at churchalive.tv. We hope to see you this weekend. Have a great week.